Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCreary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm joined by Saul Shore. Saul is a Democratic media consultant who has been at the very top of the industry for years, electing big city mayors, governors, senators. Saul was part of the Obama media team and is one of the most creative and strategic media minds in the country. I'm excited to talk to him today. Saul Shore, tell me about how you grew up. The first two years of my life, I lived on an egg farm in Lakewood, New Jersey. Then my parents moved to uh, Levittown, Pennsylvania from 1956 to uh, the mid-60s. And then, uh, fortunately for me, my parents moved to uh, New York City, to uh, Queens, where there was uh, a thing being created called Rochdale Village. Pretty interesting, with 20 buildings with 22,000 people that were Mitchell-Lama middle-class lower middle-class housing uh, built uh, where the old Jamaica racetrack was in Queens. Uh, 99% of the kids and families were from in the city. I happened to be coming from Pennsylvania. My father's job had moved. And uh, it was actually 80% was interesting. It was 80% white, 20% black. Most of the white people were Jewish and they had been fleeing the other boroughs because of race and crime and really cramped quarters and had gotten this kind of temporary panacea in Queens of this uh, cooperative housing. Is this a Robert Moses project? It was. It was Robert Moses who who designed and and had this idea of putting it where the racetrack had been. It was important to me because um, I would have wound up growing up in Levittown, PA. Uh, I think I got a totally different world by being in New York. Give us a slice of life growing up in in Queens in this you know, massive humanity um, uh, uh, that that has been been created out of, out of scratch. I think it was a you know the diversity of New York was so much different than the diversity of Levittown, even though it was very Jewish in terms of the percentage of white people there who were Jews. There was you know I went to a junior high school that was probably I don't know eighty percent African American. I went to a high school that was probably like close to a third Italian, a third black, and a third white. And so I think you're just exposed to a lot of diversity in its own way, uh, different clearly than what I had experienced before. Are there any of your contemporaries who grew up in that establishment who we would know, I mean, not just political, but but otherwise, you know, New York is a, a breeding ground for so much Well, I've only read Anthony Weiner, apparently, after I left, lived there. Meyer Kahane was a rabbi nearby who was known as a kind of a right wing who I think was assassinated. Actually, was the rabbi at the synagogue uh, before I got there. Yeah, but I think just uh, it was interesting in that a lot of the people who were there were from the garment industry. It was a lot of downscale or lower, lower middle class people who were not college educated were the parents. I mean, there were some, but there was many more taxi drivers than teachers very grateful in looking back that I had gotten that level of experience. And then, you know, I wound up going to the University of Wisconsin, where I was not much of a matriculator. And I wound up leaving after a couple of years and hitchhiked across the country. I think my largest hitch was from Riverside, California to St. Cloud, Minnesota. Then I worked in a sugar refinery shoveling sugar in Boston for nine months in Charlestown. That kind of convinced me that maybe going back to school was a good idea. And then I went to school in D.C. for one year, but then went back to Wisconsin where I actually wound up working for Mo Udall. Before we get into your political sphere, did you feel like you grew up in a political family? Was politics a, a dinner table conversation for you? Yeah, in the sense that, well, I think my my mother's side of the family clearly had 
either deep socialist or communist uh, roots of uh, Jews who had left Poland. And my father was just, a, you know, they were liberal New York Jews who might occasionally vote for a Rockefeller Republican who was Jewish, like Jacob Javits. We didn't know any famous people, but I, I think I came from a pretty, you know, that they were very liberal and very opinionated in a left of center way. Well, what are some of your earlier political memories as a kid growing up? You know, maybe even before you get to uh, to Queens, but what are some of your earlier political memories? Was there a candidate, a campaign, a cause that captured your attention before you're you're on the road hitchhiking and, and you find yourself actually working <laughs> in politics? I remember James Michener, uh, who ran for Congress, who was the author, uh, ran for Congress in Bucks County and lost. And he uh, was at a coffee clutch three or four houses down that my mother went to. So I remember that. Uh, obviously, for anybody of my age, the seminal moment is the day President Kennedy died. I think that's a seminal you know, thing to you. And when you're nine years old or 10 years old in 1963, and I remember looking out the window and not having heard yet over the loudspeaker, but seeing the flag being changed you know, to have mass. And, that I, and then I remember Robert Kennedy running for uh, the Senate in New York and coming to Rochdale Village with a crowd that waited to see him for hours and hours, like, I don't know, literally three or four hours where he was running late, but was late at night. And so I I think, you know, for anybody of my age who grows up in a Democratic family, Kennedy's assassination uh, would be the seminal, you know, moment that you remember. What about the city politics of that age? You cut your teeth in the early part of your career doing a lot of, of work in big cities. Did the, the city politics of uh, of New York make an impression on you at the time or was it later think, in life? I think later in life. I mean, obviously, Lindsay and, and watching all of that a little bit and then, you know, the prism through Koch, et cetera. And my favorite uh, slogan of all time was the race for Ed, with Ed Koch, which I think it was... Uh, after eight years of charisma and four years of the clubhouse, I think, why don't we try competence? But I, I think I didn't understand the city politics when I lived in New York very much. You're hitchhiking across the country, going to college, leaving college. Talk about before you, you land on that Mo Udall campaign, you know, what, is, what direction are you thinking uh, your life is headed? I would say directionless. Obviously, people were starting to worry about their draft number, uh, which I was just young enough that it didn't hit me, but obviously Vietnam was going on. My father had actually, during the Depression, even though he was the only guy in his family to go to college, couldn't get a job. And I always said uh, at his, I said he was an unpaid guest of the Union Pacific Railroad. So in some ways, it may have actually been my pursuit of kind of his itinerant nature of maybe a little bit more personal than societal. I didn't have much of a plan. Let's put it that way. But despite not having a plan, as you mentioned, you find yourself through happenstance uh, connected to uh, to the Mo Udall campaign. You know, talk a bit about who you know when this is, who Mo Udall is, and uh, and what you're doing there. Well, I'm a sucker for it. Turns out for these kind of self-deprecating, turned out uh, political figures. He was a congressman from Arizona, the brother of Stuart Udall, uh, a one-eyed uh, Mormon, not practicing, uh, known for his sense of humor. Uh, an amazing guy. It obviously didn't have a personal relationship. I was working a presidential campaign as a lowest end person that you could be. And as you say, the Udall clan, you had Mo Udall, Stu Udall of that era. And then, of course, the uh, progeny now, Senator Mark Udall, Senator Tom Udall, all connected in yep, some way yep. to the Udalls of uh, of the Mountain West. Yeah, I and mean, I've gotten to meet both. One was obviously his nephew and one was his son. Gotten to meet them. 
it was, uh, I was, I think in class one day and a woman named Marianne Sandretti came up and asked me, did I want to work for Mo Udall? And I kind of knew who he was. And I said, yes. And I, the funny thing is, is I think within the next day I have, so I signed on to be a volunteer and work in the campaign. And I got interviewed by Myra McPherson of the Washington Post the next day and was in the Washington Post 48 hours after I had signed on as a volunteer. Uh, it did occur to me that after 48 hours, this looked pretty cool. And I think within a week, I was with the candidate's daughter driving north to a rally. And within a couple of weeks after that, I was with the advanced people helping to make a radio ad for a rally. And so it seemed very accessible early on. So I think it it was uh, it was kind of funny that uh, how I kind of started in campaigns. I had been a volunteer for working when I worked in New York City for one summer in a different sugar refinery with a different job uh, than the shoveling sugar in Boston, where I had volunteered for McGovern. Um, but really, my my first time working in a campaign was running around the country for Udall, like a dog, for very little money, $25 a week, sometimes, sometimes nothing. And so the Udall campaign, this is 1976 primaries, correct? And the Udall campaign, Peter's out, Carter uh, comes out of those 76 primaries propelled. Uh, by Iowa as a launch pad there. What happens after the Udall campaign closes up shop? Well, one of my mentors in the campaign, there were really two, a guy named Bob Bedard uh, and a guy named Paul Tully. And Tully went to work for a guy who's very uh, much a part of American history, Allard Lowenstein, who led the Dump Johnson movement, who was running for Congress in, uh, he ran in a number of places, but in this case, he was running in Long Island. And Tully went to run, uh, was uh, to New York to run the Lowenstein campaign and brought me with him. My first stint after that was going to New York to work for Lowenstein doing field. You touched a bit on on Lowenstein, but give a, a very colorful, influential character. Can you just sidebar and give us give us you know a bit of a, a profile of Allard Lowenstein? Yeah, uh, an odd duck, but very, you know had led the dump, the Dump Johnson movement, very integral with Robert Kennedy to stuff in South Africa a pioneer in the civil rights movement. I think he was on the board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, if, I, if I'm correct about the history. I think there's a story that he used to tell that he got the stationery and it had all of those reverends, Reverend Andrew, you know, Reverend, Reverend Andrew Young, Reverend, et cetera, Reverend, and had Rabbi, uh, no, it had Reverend Allard K. Lowenstein on it. He had to call up and say, I'm not a Reverend. And he got the new stationery and it had all the reverends and it had Rabbi. Uh, and he said, I'm not a rabbi either, but he had been actually out of some of the politics in the late 40s, I think, in North University of North Carolina, uh, with all of the that kind of bred into the eventual stuff with Jesse Helms, and uh, just a note, really led the Dump Johnson movement over the war and stuff, and uh, ran uh, a number of times in a number of different places, you know, parts of New York for Senate and for Congress, but really was kind of a charismatic uh, figure. My, I got working for him was really, you know, fascinating in that I got to do advance. I'd had Mrs. Martin Luther King for a day fly in uh, into a Republican dominated machine and had to make up the schedule at the age of 22 and take her around for the day when she, the Republican machine was trying to stop certain events from happening during the day. Uh, remember the first event of the day was I found the night before because we needed an extra stop, a very, very poor black neighborhood in the five towns of New York in which we found a minister who had a garage and had people come up and, you know, bet, you know, said, this is the only chance in your life you'll ever get people to see Ms. Martin Luther King and had them come up and kiss her and then drop to his knees when we went to his little office in the garage and 
had a, had a rally, did 10 stops for the day, had one rally in which uh, an hour and a half before I had no people and I found a bunch of guys playing craps in an alley and they agreed to go into the sound car for me and go through the projects and we had a full house uh, an hour and a half later. So it's one of those kind of experiences. Also had Jerry Brown for a day because beyond having a relationship with Kennedy, he had a very strong relationship Lowenstein with Jerry Brown early in Brown's career. So and he was kind of this- Brown, is, Brown is governor at California yeah, this time, flew, right? his, yeah, in his, yeah, first, his first stint as governor. Yeah, he, had, he flew in. And actually at that time, when we put him down, you know, after the end of the day of him running around, uh, they, Nassau County cops uh, drove, we drove onto the tarmac to the, the plane, which wouldn't happen today. The plane was, uh, was held up to fly to California so that the governor with police cars could come onto the, the tarmac and get him on the plane. So it was, a, it, was very, it was a great job in just in terms of learning. Not too long after that, you find yourself one of the uh, most successful operatives in terms of electing uh, mayors and, and and navigating city politics, not just in New York City, like you've talked about, but but all over the country. What is your path from that unsuccessful uh, Lowenstein race to becoming one of the uh, most skilled, adept practitioners of, of big city politics? Well, I kind of ran around for a couple of years after that, just doing campaigns. And in 1979, I got a job for a guy named John Anderson, the black John Anderson, uh, not the white John Anderson, as we said, because they happened in, I wound up uh, doing a little bit of the white John Anderson as well later on. And it, he was this flamboyant guy who was running for city council in Philadelphia. This was right after Frank Rizzo had lost the charter change in an attempt to try to run for a third term. And really there was this change happening from the machine politics uh, with African-Americans to a real uh, sense of, of, of kind of community politics that were taking on the machine. So this was the first election after Frank Rizzo had lost his charter change. And there was an election for city council at large with 103 people running for five positions, five incumbents, 98 challengers. I had one of the 98 challengers. Two of the five incumbents won. Three of the 98 challengers won. My guy won. When I got to, I got to Philadelphia with $73 in my pocket, uh, but I bought the Daily News and uh, his his campaign chairman, Lucian Blackwell, who wound up actually going to Congress later on, who was councilman, had been punched on the floor of city council by one of the Rizzo guys, Fran Rafferty. And so actually boxing became our our campaign theme. I got to you know do some incredible things. There was a, he was kind of from a different wing than Congressman Bill Gray. But Bill Gray had one of the candidates who actually was one, Augusta Clark. So and I got my I got to go to Bright Hope Baptist Church on Easter Sunday morning without my candidate to cut a deal with Bill Gray that our people from West Philadelphia and Lucian Blackwell would be for Gussie Clark and the Gray machine would be for John Anderson. Uh, and we wound up it was a campaign of ballots of what people were handed on Election Day. He finished fifth out of the 103 and wound up being a city councilman. So that got my start in Philadelphia and in urban politics and hired a little ad agency that had really very little experience in politics, just had four or five people. And they asked me to open a political division after that. And so that's for the first several years after that, we did a lot of races in the city, a lot of, of uh, middle-class black political figures that were rising to take on the machine um, as well as even in, in, in poor neighborhoods. So uh, some of the Chakafatas of the world and Dwight Evans, who's now my client, actually, um, in their very embryonic years of them, people were moving out. White, a lot of white wards were turning over from white to black. And there was this 
movement of, of, of black empowerment in the post Rizzo years. So for the first number of years after, you know, John Anderson won, I, I did more than anything else. I did a lot of African-American politics. And then in, I, I, in 1984, I think I did Alan Wheat's campaign for Congress in Kansas City. It's a black congressman in an 80% white district. And then in 80, 86, I, I got to finally do you know, some other stuff. I wound up uh, working for David Price, who's still a congressman from um, Chapel Hill. But those first several years were very involved in city politics. Well, most of what you described have been very much the, the, the mechanical, transactional, nuts and bolts operations of electing uh, candidates in, in, in city politics, navigating political machines and striking deals and, and all of that, which you've described. Where did you get this gene from not just this field hand-to-hand combat of campaigns, but also in the message, in the communication side of it, which is, of course, what you are known for now? How do you, how do you bridge that gap? Uh, I don't know. I hope some of it's intuitive. I hope it isn't all learned. I know there's now classes in college to go get a degree in campaign in campaigns. Uh, I had my own curriculum, I, I guess. But I, I think, I don't know, it's one of those things where I think just doing it, you get some sense of kind of a people and what resonates. I, I don't know. You're a pollster. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know, I don't know uh, exactly where the rubber meets the road there. But I think it's just some natural sense of how to communicate. Uh, you talk about joining uh, an existing firm and opening up a political division. At, at what point do you open up your own firm and, and sort of hang up your shingle under your own name? Well, I think that what happened, you know, after several years, we agreed to have a division of it that would be my company. And eventually through various permutations that's changed over the years with the name Shore being the constant. It's always been owned by the quote Shore holding company. Sounds so corporate. But yeah, I think within a number of years, it just made sense. This little teeny advertising agency, it made sense. And they understood it too for, excuse me, for me to really have a, you know, a company that I I was kind of the head of. And I was fortunate enough to then bring on over the years, some people with incredible talent. My first partner, Howard Coffin, Adam Magnus, who's become, you know, a a star, Andrea Johnson, who really has been one of the pioneers for women, you know, in the business, you know, just, I was really able to surround myself with a lot of very talented people. What do you know about running a business? I mean, the, the gene to be an effective strategist, the gene to be a quality, compelling ad maker is different than the gene to run a business. They don't always align. Often they do not. What do you know about running a business, starting a business very uh, now? Very little. Well, you, you, must know, <laughs> you must know more now than you did uh, when you started. What have you been doing? You know, you know it's, it, uh, we actually had a business, even our accountants were surprised where every you know, January 1st, I had zero money in you know the bank. I took all the money out, dispersed it to myself and to our partners and to bonuses, and then started again. So, you know, look, some of the people who do what I do have created large shops that do a lot of things other than campaigns. We've done very little other than campaigns over the years. You know, I never had a large enough overhead that it really would have, you know, I think put itself into the classification of a real business in that sense. It really became kind of a boutique operation. All I cared about was having more money than we spent. 
And you mentioned some of your earlier races, obviously working through city politics, Congressman David Price, Congressman Alan Wheat, uh, you know, beyond the congressional level, looking at the statewide level, what are some of your earlier statewide or really high dollar, high, highly competitive signature races that you uh, that you worked on? Well, the first race that we had a real breakthrough, it was probably the longest odds of somebody that I've ever had who's won. Uh, we got hired by Ben Nelson in Nebraska in 1990. We had a poll. Uh, there were four people at the time that he decided to run who we thought were going to be in the race. We took a poll and it was like 610 people. And as you know, in a pollster in the filled in questionnaire, if you had 610 people, you'd have to have four people in order to classify getting at 1% in the filled in. To round up to 1%. Yes. And he had only two people, it turned out. We found out from the uh, cross tabs. I said, maybe they thought you were Ricky Nelson uh, at the briefing. We won by 46 votes, I believe, 46, 43 votes. And they had three recounts. Ben had put in a little bit of money, more than a little million to me. And I, I kept, they did three recounts. I kept telling him, if we, they keep counting, we're going to lose one of these times. And then he went on to the general election was against the incumbent Republican governor of Nebraska, Kaur, and we won by a percent. So he won his primary by 46 votes and he won his general against a Republican incumbent by uh, by one. So that that really helped us at least in a significant way by 90. And then the other thing for my first big races actually were not big to uh, humanity, but big to me. I did a lot of lieutenant governor's races in the South. In, in many states, the lieutenant governor has no power, but it turned out in a lot of these Southern states like Georgia, the lieutenant governor uh, wound up at that point uh, appointing the chairman of every Senate committee. And so obviously it turned out that there was a lot of money. They were competitive races and important within the state. Just like when I had started in the early 80s, you know, you'd get to places where a lot of other people hadn't been. And I used to tell them that uh, in a recorded American history, nobody uh, ever told their mama they wanted to be lieutenant governor of anything. And so that if they'd hire me, I'd worked hard, but I'd hope that I would be in for the long haul. And a bunch of people who were lieutenant governor that I worked for wound up running for governor or something else. And so really by just going to places that weren't traditional of what other people were looking for for business, both with the Ben Nelson race and other races for lieutenant governor, we started to build at least a little bit of a base in the South. Run through some of your lieutenant governors who, who ended had, up uh, taking your advice and being able to, to transcend the august trappings of the lieutenant governor's office. <laughs> some of them didn't run. I mean, but uh, Bev Perdue. Uh, I did both Mike Easley running for governor uh, in North Carolina, and I actually did Dennis Wicker for lieutenant governor, and he, but he ran against Mike Easley, so I, I couldn't do both. Uh, but Bev Perdue, who I helped on her lieutenant governor's race and then did her governor's race in North Carolina, uh, Don Sigelman in Alabama, an odd one, Pierre Howard, who uh, won for lieutenant governor in Georgia and then decided not to run for governor, which was a surprise to me and to the state. And then obviously we did lieutenant governors in places like Missouri, where there was not any resources. They, they were not uh, high profile, but obviously Mel Carnahan did his uh, race for lieutenant governor of Missouri. He wound up running for governor and winning. And, and so that was a, a deliberate strategy. I mean, as you say, you were, you, were, you were trying to find candidates who maybe were not being deluged by, by your competitors. You know, yeah, I think in the, what people have to remember in the early days when I got in a car, and I just bought a new car that I could with 17% interest in 1982, where I had to get a state senator to help me get the car loan because I wouldn't have qualified. 
But, you know, I got to Mississippi to see Robert Clark, or I got to see a guy named Jim Young in Erie, and you'd literally get to someplace in 1982, and they had not seen anybody yet. Nobody had been there. Whereas today, you know, I've actually seen uh, candidates who have 25 reels behind them that they've gotten from consultants. And so it was a, it was a time at which, you know, just the hustle uh, could make a difference. And did you feel, I mean, being a, you know, a relatively young Jewish guy who cut your teeth in big city politics, living in Philadelphia from New York, did you feel any friction trying to, trying to pitch clients in the Mississippis and the North Carolinas and the Alabamas? I felt a little uncomfortable having Pennsylvania license plates on a little Tercel driving through rural Mississippi in the 80s. Uh, but that, that had nothing to do with the candidate. That had to do with the environment. But actually, no. I mean, they'd laugh. I, I remember after we elected Pierre Howard, uh, which was a big race in, in Georgia uh, for lieutenant governor, he was you know, at a very prestigious formal law firm, at, but a bunch of the kind of good old you know, lawyers sat around after we won and they went, you know what? They said, you know what? We're going to take you hunting. And then they looked at me and in a cha- thinking ahead of what happened with Dick Cheney years later, they went, uh, no, we're not. <laughs> and that was a good decision for them and for me. But no, I, 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 I think I felt pretty comfortable just, uh, and, 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 and I would say that given your life experience doing what I do, uh, it's been a treat to be in all of these places. I think that anybody who I know who's also in my business, I think that being in factories for a kid growing up in New York to to see how cellophane was made in Kansas or be in Wichita and see how planes were made or be in Missouri and see a shoe factory. And so all of these places, I just loved being, which maybe goes back a little bit to being on the road and hitchhiking and things like that. I really loved assimilating and being in places in which you learn culturally. I like food. It was always great. I never, uh, I always looked for the place uh, in the, off the beaten path. But I think that culturally, both being able to see America, see different people. I've been to 49 states. I need to get North Dakota before I die. That I just think that the experience of it all, if you really embrace it, look, it's a lot of days in Holiday Inn Expresses in uh, Cape Girardeau, so it, it isn't like living at the Ritz. But I think that uh, you learn something from the road and you learn something from the people that you're dealing with. And I, I think these folks felt pretty comfortable. It was pretty clear that I was not from there. The privilege of going to the inaugurations of governors of states, being there when in a driving rainstorm to hear... Terry McAuliffe being called His Excellency, the governor of Virginia, Terrence McAuliffe. I, and to go to inaugural balls, to be in Nebraska for an inauguration and see a Native American tribe perform, to see choirs perform, to be in Arizona and elect a governor, and to be there and see the nature of the state come together. And, you know, great, great experiences that I think you, you know, that you get in a non-COVID uh, world of assimilating. You mentioned Don Siegelman in Alabama. That was actually the first job I ever worked on in a campaign where I drew a check, and that was a very small check for putting up signs. But I know you were intimately involved with Governor Siegelman, uh, uh, his campaign. Can you tell me what that 98 campaign was like? And just for context, that's the last time a Democrat has won a race in in, in Alabama for governor. Not only won it, but won it in a, in a very significant uh, way. So talk a bit about your experience. Well, well, I, well I, I will. I, I want to say two days ago, I, I called him to wish him a happy 75th uh, birthday. Uh, and I, before I talk about the campaign, I want to make sure that I claim that he is the example of moral injustice in America. 
uh, that I think that it was a political witch hunt to go after him, that he was raising money for a lottery, uh, to spend money for a lottery to try to help education. And I actually believe it's the example of uh, what I always called the Sessions Judiciary and, and, uh, and pretty blatant uh, misuse of judicial power that imprisoned him. Yeah, I mean, look, he was a guy running against, he was lieutenant governor and had been never kind of hid where his politics were as secretary of state or attorney general. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, was running against Bob James. You know, we ran, a, I think, a very strong campaign on values and ultimately a lot of good people, Jim Andrews and others. And I think that they thought they were going to roll Don. Didn't happen. And I, I just think he laid out at a time before we've seen this level of polarization in the South of where how hard it is to elect a Democrat. He put together the coalition of, of unions and teachers and African-Americans. Uh, and there was always something unique about him, I think, to, to Alabama in that time when he was just very rare to have somebody win, uh, that he's uh, for real and organic. And I think that the people of Alabama appreciated that. Uh, well, so tell me about Mel Carnahan. Uh, Mel Carnahan, I uh, I went and saw him. I think I they, the family laughs because I think I pitched in sweatpants on a Saturday. And he was running for lieutenant governor. Harriet Woods had decided not to run for re-election. She was John Ashcroft's lieutenant governor. I believe, what is that, 1988? Mel decided to run. He had run for governor and lost, had been a former state treasurer. I got to meet him uh, running for lieutenant governor. And ran a, what I thought was an excellent campaign that he had, um, you know, I think uh, would have been 88 that that uh, Ashcroft was running for governor for re-election. And my own remembrance is whatever Dukakis lost Missouri by that we, we ran, you know, it was one of these things where I don't know, you know, I, I think Ashcroft may have won by 18 and Mel won by one or two. So we had an enormous mountain in front of us. And my favorite ad from then is we did an ad, you know, that had a picture of Bush uh, uh, with Quayle and Benson. And we said that there's been a lot of talk about the two candidates for uh, vice president. But in Missouri, we get to pick our number two separately. What a relief. And the choice is just as clear. And we were able to do that. And then, you know, I became very good friends with him and his family. And of all the people I've ever worked for in my life, I think I had the highest regard from him of anybody else. Just like a second father figure to me. He was a throwback to, I think, kind of a Truman-esque sense of a guy who just a quiet dignity and real purpose about what he wanted to do. Uh, the one thing I'd, I'd say more than anything else is, look, and I don't mean this disparagingly, most people that you work for make you feel good about them. That's the nature of politics. You know, that there's something about them. Obviously, to run requires an ego. It requires a sense of people wanting to follow you. Uh, but he had the very unique sense that I think also of somebody like Bob Casey, frankly, but more than anyone else, ever else that I worked for, working for him made you feel good about yourself. You may, there was something about him where being part of the people around him or believing in him, that quiet dignity, it just made you feel good about yourself. And obviously, after being governor and being, re, and being reelected, he was persuaded to run for the Senate. It was an epic battle of ideologies with him and John Ashcroft. And as we know, unfortunately, several weeks before the election, tragically, he 
and his chief of staff, Chris Sifford, and his eldest son, Randy, died in a plane crash. As you say, in the middle of this horrific tragedy, uh, you're also in the midst of a U.S. Senate race. Uh, can you talk about, you know, as part of somebody very involved in that campaign, can you talk about on the political side, obviously it's clear what goes through one's mind on the personal side, but you're still, you know, having to wear or put back on uh, your political hat. Uh, and so tell me about the aftermath, the political aftermath of that horrific plane crash. Well, obviously, it was just an amazing ceremony, an emotional thing where Clinton gave the eulogy and, you know, and it was outside with, you know, in front of the Capitol and the level of the of the kind of funeral that it was given how and then the family had to travel to Rolla the next day for the funeral of of his eldest son. And then the caravan went another day to uh, Puxico for the funeral and the, and the, and the burial of, of his chief of staff. And farmers would be in the field with their hat over their heart. I mean, it was this emotional time for the state. Politically, uh, look, we met with the family that night. They are tough and deeply committed to public service. And we met in the mansion that night while no final decision was made. They were very clear about what lied ahead and what dad would want them to do, and what her, in Jean's case, what her husband would want her to do, and they weighed all of that. And obviously, in a very short time, Lieutenant Governor Roger Wilson was sworn in and obviously made it clear that if uh, she chose to continue the campaign, Jean Carnahan, in her husband's name, that that is who he was going to appoint to the U.S. Senate. You know, it's the only time in American history, to my knowledge, that someone who is deceased has been elected to the Senate. They actually, by voting for her, but they had to vote for him. They had to pull the lever three, four weeks later for somebody who was no longer alive. And he won. He beat John Ashcroft. The public sentiment and clearly the the, the goodwill and the and the, the beloved nature of Governor Carnahan at that time was, was a huge factor. But what, what did the campaign do mechanically to, to marshal some of that sentiment? Well, we were all in uncharted territory and all just emotionally blown away. But I called Mark Farinella, who's a good friend of mine, who was the uh, campaign manager and had been his chief of staff. And I told him, get me a million buttons that say I'm still with Mel. He thought I was crazy. He heard me out. And we actually had to find button manufacturers around the country because of the demand at that point. And I think it wound up being three quarters of a million. We couldn't get to a million. Uh, the mail houses couldn't process them. So they all had to be, I asked for a letter. We got a letter signed by six very kind of different people. One was former Senator Eagleton. One was, I think, a rabbi. Six people signed a letter. We put a button in 750,000 envelopes and asked people, uh, I said, we need people to wear them every day. We need to ask people to wear them every day because I thought that if you went to the supermarket and you saw a number of people wearing a button that uh, where they were voting for someone who was uh, deceased, that they might think it was real. And uh, we agreed to only one uh, public interview for Jean. She got interviewed by Cokie Roberts. She thought, given that her father had perished in a political plane crash. Yeah. Former Congressman Hale Boggs. You know, we did, she did one interview. She decided, we had to film two different ads, but she, we filmed an ad with her deciding to run, a brilliant ad that she helped to write for 60 seconds and did it in a fairly reasoned way not to do too much volume. I was worried that people would see it too much, but I wanted them to see it. We ran a very unusual campaign, I think, tried to, 
I don't know, to navigate the task of what was at hand. I mean, obviously, John Ashcroft was an incredibly formidable figure. And by a very narrow margin, I was in, I was in the privilege to be at the farmhouse with her and a few people on election night. I think I smoked a pack of Pall Mall non-filters that night. Not a big smoker, but it seemed like a night to, uh, to do that. And um, uh, just an amazing, amazing thing for her to have won and an amazing, and I think, you know, as Dick Durbin said to me, a client of mine from, Senator from, you know, Illinois, obviously, that uh, I think when she spoke to the caucus for the first time, I think, you know, she's very eloquent. She wrote a lot of Mel's speeches, but she said, all of you are here because of your wins. I'm here because of my loss. Well, so I'll thank you for that story. That's a perfect example of why I, I wanted to have this podcast so I could I could I could talk to folks like you who have been through these things, obviously, uh, both both tragedy, but also historic in its uh, in its impact. From that, I, just bouncing around a couple of, of other things, you've been so kind to indulge me to, to, to walk through your career. Uh, you're also on the uh, part of the 2008 Obama general election uh, campaign. That was a campaign that famously not just won ad maker, not just one media consultant, which has generally been the model, had been the model uh, up to that point in presidential campaigns, largely, uh, but had multiple big personalities, multiple uh, creative people around that, helping to think through that campaign. Uh, Can you talk about who was involved in that process uh, and how it worked with so many people under one roof? Well, uh, they disciplined us pretty well. We, We were beggars. They, you know, David Axelrod and Jim Margolis, a- after he had secured the nomination, added four other media firms. Uh, we were chattel, responsive, and busted our ass. I mean, we were privileged to have been brought in. So we followed orders. You know, obviously, one of the things that we did that we're very proud of, I mean, we got a bunch of our ads, so there was a real competition to get your ad on the air. And so they had a lot of hungry people who were not being paid well. Uh, but who were, in our case, anxious to get our ads on the air. So, I mean, one of the ads we made, Andy Johnson had a lot to, to do with it, you know, got onto the Olymp- was one of the ads they showed during the Olympics. We did the final negative closer ad, you know, that ran nationally. So, but the other thing that we did for them is, is that um, we, uh, we did a lot of the internal attack ads against Obama. And uh, they actually scored a little higher than the testing would have allowed so that we were doing ads that uh, it was a great call, call once where we were on a, a thing and I, uh, David Axelrod said, uh, hey, is Saul on? Uh, yeah, and it was a lot of people. And he goes, hey, you're a mean motherfucker. And I said, thank you. But yeah, I mean, we did ads that were much turned out to be much more serious and would have caused him many more problems. Than and talk about talking. talk about the role that plays that the, uh, the role that plays in campaigns and why a campaign would spend its time and resources dummying up uh, negative attacks against their own candidate. Well, you want to know how to I mean, actually, they then assigned a number of people. I don't think they found a good answer for some of what we did. Put one ad that had uh, some Spanish and the English version about uh, uh, immigration and one ad about patriotism and but yeah i think you want to be prepared you know you you should be thinking that you can figure out how to attack your own candidate at a level that might be more vicious more hard-hitting and more effective than what you 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 know your own opposition is going to do to you and what do you do about it and so if you you really want to want to figure that out i mean you want to figure out what's coming at you can we take a sidebar there? Can you give me your obviously races are different, campaigns are different, facts are different, different types of attacks are different. But can you give your your Cliff Notes version of how to think about 
negative ads, how to think about attacking your opponent. Well, I always say first that negative ads are easier to make than positive ads, that, that the credit ought to go to, it's harder to do very, very good positive ads. Obviously, we live in a society in which people, as you know, given that you do focus groups, act, that people say they, uh, one, they hate negative ads, two, that they look up everything on Wikipedia or they look online to check. But the bottom line is, is negative ads work. I think what you're looking for is how do you look at both the polling and your gut and how do you do it in a way that is also going to have enough credibility to be believed. As a pollster, you know that, that uh, or at least a pollster who's dealt with me, that we don't take everything by the numbers in rote. I remember, you know, for Sherrod Brown against Josh Mandel, uh, Adam Magnus and Andy Johnson, I, I, I think we... You know, we, we, with Diane Feldman, we wound up picking the sixth most effective argument in the poll because a lot of the other arguments either had that we were worried about having trepidation about backfire, but also because we thought somehow it was the most organic. So I think that hopefully you're using judgment, not just numbers and analytics to make some of those decisions. It's one of the things I wonder very much about the business today of you know, of the judgment, which I've been very vocal about, of making decisions when things come back from testing uh, in a way that kind of sometimes obscures uh, judgment. And I think it's a balance. Yeah. Uh, one of the most effective ads uh, of the 2012 cycle, uh, especially in the presidential, in, instead of working for the Obama campaign directly, you're doing work for one of the, the primary super PACs there. And, and you and your firm and your colleagues put together an ad that is you know widely considered one of the more memorable, maybe the most memorable line of attack against Mitt Romney. Can you can you talk about the ad? I think Stages maybe is the name or Stage yeah, I, is the yeah. name of the spot. I mean, obviously we went, Adam Magnus and I went around the country and you know talked to people who had worked for Mitt Romney in, or his companies. But there's an example both of Adam Magnus's genius, and we both did the interview. A lot of what's in there came from, you know, from him interviewing the guy. But there's an example of quality people all coming together first. The advanced person, who is, you know, probably as good as anybody in the country at doing what he did, goes and meets people ahead of time. And we got a call which said, I think I have something. So we knew in advance. He goes, you know, we just met with a guy who worked for one of Romney's companies, who actually was asked to build a stage for a big meeting that people were gonna come into and that uh, from the company, and that he basically built the stage from which he was fired. We, a guy named Mike Ernst, a wonderful guy, wound up doing an ad in which he basically told the story. And it was this kind of very downscale part of town, a, a place where once the business had closed, it hurt the town significantly in Indiana. and. Uh, yeah, I mean, they were told a bunch of the guys pulled off what they normally do, and they had to build an entire stage. They didn't know why. And the next day, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, somebody, Hancho, flew in and uh, stood on that stage and told them they're all fired. But it's also the example of a quality team working together that literally, I think we had told Paul Begala and others who were involved, you know, we, we kind of knew that there was the potential out there at that point when we had heard what the stories were. And obviously it kind of said it all about greed. And clearly reinforced a lot of the concerns that voters had, specifically perhaps voters in the in the Rust Belt uh, about Mitt Romney. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mitt Romney at that time. And I'll, I'll tweet that ad out. It's on YouTube. I'll tweet it out from the podcast uh, account. 
we know that we were in focus groups months afterwards <laughs> that when it initially ran in Ohio, <laughs> and I think the New Yorker wrote about this, <laughs> that people brought it up months after it hadn't been on the air. So one, that's normally something odd is going on and that Mary Beth Cahill and others, you know, there was a decision made very late when they just, with you know, whatever, two weeks to go, like, what are we going to do? And it was like, let's just run that. It's a 60 second ad. So it costs double. And it was just this decision of, look, forget all of the analysis. Let's just put that thing back on. And so we ran it back again. But I mean, to me, the most indicative thing that I saw was literally months later, people brought it up when it was no longer on the air. And that's a very odd thing. Exceedingly rare when the shelf life of, of these things is yeah. um, it, measured in days, not months. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned how uh, in some ways it was very unlikely that Ben Nelson was elected governor of Nebraska. Another another race you worked on where perhaps looked unlikely at first was uh, making Al Franken a member of the U.S. Senate. I think we're running into a number of my clients that I always think I need to, before I talk about them, set the record straight in my sense of the injustice uh, done to him as well which I believe uh, pretty significantly. I think he was a terrific U.S. Senator and basically uh, should still be a Senator today. I won't say any more than that, than I believe there was injustice. Uh, no, it's very interesting um, that, you know, when we, we were doing the campaign, I mean, you know that a guy who had grown up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, had obviously not lived there for quite some time because of his career, and had basically moved back. And so you had a guy who hadn't been there for some of his life, although he came back regularly. And obviously we had some pictures interesting. It was clear that he had, he and his kids had become, you know, had not become, had, you know, that his kids were Vikings fans and, you know, that he considered himself a Minnesotan regardless of where he was on the planet. But you had a guy who clearly was known as a comedian and an outspoken left of center person who hadn't been in the state in a long time. And so it's one of those times where the first ad, I think, really mattered. Who is this guy? And does he have a reason for being that's justified even to the Democratic primary electorate? And so we did a wonderful ad, you know, with his fourth grade teacher, a lady named Val Moline, who talked about uh, that he had gotten a letter for real from her. And he held up the letter and he said, I got a letter from my fourth grade teacher. And and he basically said, so I called her up and asked her if she'd be in a TV ad. And she had this great accent because when she, he got sworn in, we saw her on the elevator and, and, and always wanted to repeat her line. And she, she went, OK, here we go. And she talked about how hard a worker Alan, Alan Franken was, Alan, A-L-A-N, and, and how hard a worker Alan Franken was and that he was funny, too. Maybe, you know, maybe that's why he grew up to be a comedian. And then he had a line that he wrote, which he came back on away from her and went, I was really more of a satirist. But then she told his story of how he had, you know, written books, that he had a radio show on public policy, that he'd entertain our troops and what his ideas were for the future. And there's a little adorable scene when the two of them were together at the end where he said, you know, his disclaimer required by law when he would just say, I'm Al Franken. He went, I'm Alan and Andy Johnson came up with that line, you know, where he kidded about his name, given that his teacher had called him Alan. And I think it made him Minnesota and gave him a reason for running that was justified to the electorate. And so more than that, you know, we run against an incumbent United States senator, you know, Norm Coleman, but more than the interplay that happened later on, I always felt that how we had planted the flag there gave us a real chance in a way that advertising should do for you.
In your home state, uh, in Pennsylvania, in 2014, you worked for a person who became Governor Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania. And just from afar, someone who was watching it from afar, it seemed to employ some pretty innovative, creative strategies, but even perhaps some uh, some of the tactics of, of media buying to help him break out of a crowded field. Yeah, I, first, uh, it, unfortunately, it's not a, one of my clients that I have to explain that they received any injustice. Yes, Tom Wolf, he a very interesting guy. You know, he had gone, he was going to have run in uh, 2010 for the open seat uh, of governor. And very interesting, he had hired us and he went down to uh, Washington to Obama's inauguration. He was going to run in 10 and he had hired us by 2008, uh, if I have my numbers right. And he got a call that the business he had sold, this small, not small, really, I mean, uh, large uh, by its nature of what they do, making kitchen cabinets that he had sold was now going to venture capitalists was now going to go under. And he spent the afternoon writing the numbers down on the back of an envelope, left the inauguration, went back and rebought his family business to save it and called us up and said he would never run again. Very rare, sent us money, even though he was not contractually obliged to. And uh, so Tom Corbett was elected governor, Republican, and you know, uh, three years later, I got a call. We had actually stayed in touch and Tom Wolf said he wanted to go to lunch and that he was thinking about running again at lunch. I said, you said you never run again. He goes, well, I'm really thinking about it. I said, out of the blue, I just said, well, you'd have to put in like $10 million to have a chance. Rob McCord and Allison Schwartz and Katie McGinty, who wound up being his chief of staff, Wolf's chief of staff, and also a candidate for U.S. Senate. So he's running against three formidable people. He said, well, maybe I might want to do that. And I said, but could you afford that? You know, can you, would it affect Francis or the girls? And why don't you go home and think about it? And he came back the next day and said, I want to do it. And uh, he had a very unique story of having run a business, given the prop, some of the profits back to the employees. Uh, he really was like your neighbor. And of all the campaigns I've ever done in my life, a lot of people thought, even with him putting money in, that it wasn't real. He wasn't had, didn't have a chance. I don't know what you thought, Zach. You could probably comment on that. And I've never seen the level of movement that we did a bio ad in which he introduced himself and talked about had given money back and that he also had worked for the Rendell administration. But it really was like, and he had a PhD in political science. Well, we didn't say political science. He had a PhD from MIT. And he had this kind of unique persona after Corbett, literally with the polling. He went from really zero or one or two to 47 in 17 days. I remember saying to him, you know, I hate it when people in politics use war analogies because I think it's a disrespect to the military. But in this case, indulge me by saying, you know, the scene in Patton where he moved more men in arms in a shorter period of time when engaged in battle than any army in history. Well, that would be you, Tom. And he literally moved from zero to 47 in 17 days. I had gotten some of that anecdotally, which is why the pollster and Greenberg, I think, was very reluctant to poll so quickly. But we were getting such anecdotal response. And yeah, it was just remarkable. I mean, and then uh, I, I wound up calling the campaign manager, uh, Joe Schaefer, and I asked to send a million. Once again, seems like I always ask for a million or something with the buttons. But they wound up sending a half million very, very uh, extensive magazines that the mail guy did, Kevin Mack. I said, look, 
uh, frankly, what I said is these people have had the best sex they've ever had on the first date. They need to marry them. I said, it's amazing, the movement. And so we actually modeled this very early piece of extensive 16-page magazine about who he was to people who we modeled who were already for us. I said, we just need to hold on to whatever we had just to start. And then it wound up being pretty remarkable. We did get attacked uh, by the Reverend McCord. Uh, I believe uh, we were prepared given that I knew in advance a little bit from the station. So I think the attack came at, at six o'clock, but at 6 a.m. or 6.15, our, our response ad was on in real time. Uh, and a remarkably, look, it's almost impossible what he did. So he won all, all the counties. He won every county in Pennsylvania. I think he got in a four-way race, he got 58, and I think it was 58, 17, 16, six, something like that. And then he beat the incumbent by 10 to become governor, and he won re-election by 18. And so uh, he's never, this guy who's the most non-political person you'd ever meet has never had a close election. That's a, a really fascinating example. And listen, you mentioned Don Clark Netsch. Uh, we haven't talked, you mentioned Sherrod Brown. We haven't talked about Tammy Baldwin. I know you do work for Senator Schumer and that's just scratching the surface. In, instead of just going race by race, I just want to ask you a couple more macro things. And first, even, I know you're still you know, active. You're very selective in what you were involved in, but how are you thinking about this stage of your career? Look, I, I had my firm close, but I am continuing to work on IEs, independent expenditures. And then for existing clients, I'm doing some races with half of my firm, uh, you know, which is Andy Johnson and Jay Hauser, who have formed a firm, and some races with Adam Magnus, who's formed a firm with Elizabeth Pearson. And so I'm still doing some of my existing incumbents with my former partners, uh, but I'm not uh, soliciting any new individual candidates. The joke there is, which I have shared with J.B. Pritzker himself, so uh, this wouldn't be the first time you'd hear that. I've always said, well, unless somebody uh, calls me up who's running, who has more money than J.B. Pritzker, I'm not doing uh, any more individual candidates. But I continue to be involved in a lot of independent expenditures, uh, obviously with you, worked with you, Zach, on our seven-month, eight-month long in advance uh, suggestion that David Perdue might be vulnerable when others didn't think he was in the the work that you uh, did along with your partner, Molly, and uh, with our team, I think made a huge difference in stopping Purdue from uh, winning outright and forcing him into a runoff that uh, we're still doing some things that are meaningful, I think, outside of individual candidates. If there's a young person who has an itch to get into the political communications, messaging, political media business, what is your advice on how they should start thinking about that? You know, the world is so different now. Obviously, there's a lot of people coming right from the committees, the, you know, into and joining firms. There are people who are, you know, going to school in Washington in which campaigns are taught. So I think there's a lot of different avenues now. There are people who are rightfully so coming from an advertising, you know, background. But I, I don't really have a whole bunch of advice. I can only live my own life experience. I think that the hard part is determining once you're in one of these firms, what's the ability from being politically savvy and having political knowledge to creating advertising? You know, that's the challenge. I, I do think that people tend to have less real world, I'll call it campaign experience in some ways. And Really, it's after one or two cycles rather than 10 years of, of putting in the time. But I think that's the way the world works now. One of my final questions is, and this is something I've borrowed from The Economist 
Tyler Cowen. Uh, and to paraphrase him, he might talk about the Saul Shore production function, meaning a lot of smart people out there, a lot of creative people out there, a lot of people willing to work hard. But Saul, what's made you different? What's unique about you that you've been able to be so successful in what you've done? Well, uh, I can take a lot of hits, meaning I've kidded around that I take a lot of kidding and I have uh, thick skin in that sense of uh, the human pinata. But I, I think that uh, the embracing, first of all, you can't have any business unless you, you get hired. And I think that uh, the, the woman who was the women's coach for basketball women's team at Princeton went to Gino Ormea and asked what was the key to coaching. And he said, recruiting. And uh, so I think first it's, you know, you're walking in and quite often you get to see people that who are running for the United States Senator governor. And sometimes there isn't even a second interview and somebody's going to make a decision in an hour and a half or two hours of whether they're going to have you work for them for two years for a one day sale of a human being. I think that the first thing is obviously just who you are in terms of meeting someone and having somebody believe in you that you can believe in them and that you're the right person to work for them. And hopefully, I think the second thing is being appreciative of talent, of the kind of people that you surround yourself with who are smarter than you, more creative than you, and that you're able to use you know, your own instincts, but to, you know, Jay Hauser, you know, the people, Howard Coffin, the people I've been privileged to work with in my shop, and then to appreciate the talent of the other people on your team. And I mean, that with all, I hope, non kisser, we're being able to work with you and Molly uh, to take down David Perdue, to be able to ha create some level of camaraderie in and around a purpose. And so I think it's to make sure that you, you're able to use talent around you. And then uh, ultimately, I hope that there's some sign that you have instincts about this and about the business and about what resonates with people. I, I also think, as I've told my kids, there is a great sense of luck <laughs> involved in any of this. And I think you want to be able to know that there's some luck involved too. There's a lot of, a lot of good people who have had a rougher time in the business, and maybe they just haven't been as lucky either. Let's end on a couple of recommendations. First, somebody's doing a day trip to Philadelphia or an overnight weekend in Philadelphia, long weekend in Philadelphia. What should be in the, on the agenda? Well, first of all, come hungry. We are a great restaurant city. Walk the Italian market, which is still you know an outdoor market. And actually, I'd recommend they're going to a hole-in-the-wall re Mexican restaurant. There are many of them. I definitely would go to South Philadelphia for an Italian meal. I I recommend going to the saloon, it's called, which is this great steakhouse and uh, Italian restaurant. I think the Constitution Center is one of the best uh, museums in the country. It's very interactive. When there's a great room at which you see, I think it's of all the people who signed the declaration, it's all of their actual real size statues at one and, and of some figures who beyond people who signed. And so one, you understand that George Washington stood out like Andre the Giant among these people. But you will feel, uh, the, anybody over 5'2 will feel like they're a giant in the room of how, uh, how tiny our founding fathers were by and large. But it's a great interactive museum. We have wonderful bike paths. There's you know, one of the largest parks of, in a city in the country, you know, Fairmount Park. It's just a great place for hiking and to walk through. But given uh, my uh, propensity to recommend food, come, I'd come real hungry. It's a, it's a very underrated city, but it's a great walking city the ability to walk around and to see things. And then obviously there's the level of, uh, of all of the history. It's like I grew up in New York, but it took me till I was in my 40s to go to the Statue of Liberty. So it isn't like I go to the Liberty Bell, but there are some wonderful tours, you know, when, which I suggest you do with a guide 
to walk through some of the places where clearly Ben Franklin and other people really helped create the country. Yeah. Well, Saul, you've been so generous with your time there from the headquarters of the Shore Holding Company. Uh, appreciate you letting us uh, just starting to scratch the surface on on you and your career, but really appreciate your time today. This was a lot of fun. Yep. Glad to do it. And uh, good luck on your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.